Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples grumble in vain? The kings of the earth take a stand, and the rulers join together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and throw off their ropes from us. The one who is seated in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he speaks to them in his anger, and in his wrath he terrifies them. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will smash them with an iron rod. You will break them to pieces like pottery. So now, you kings, do what is wise. Accept discipline, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and you will be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice when we see an infant baptized because the scripture assures us that the Holy Spirit has been sealed in their heart. He has given birth to a new man that opposes the sinful nature, a new person that will grow in the word of God and will go to heaven. But Jesus wasn't a sinner. Why would Jesus need baptism? We're going to answer that question today, although our text does not give a thorough explanation because you could write an entire book on just that question, why was Jesus baptized? And I'm going to give away the biggest answer of all and jump immediately to verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Now, the Hebrew language does not work like the English language does, and it has verbal stems. And when it talks about a man giving birth to a child, it, is, it uses a different verbal stem in the Hebrew language than when a woman does. In Old English, they would say, I have sired you, if it was talking of a man, meaning I supplied the male end of the baby ingredients. But if it was talking about a woman, it used the stem that's used in today's text because a woman, it was, happened in her womb, and of course they didn't have the cesarean section surgery yet, so she passed the baby through her birthing canal and had all the labor pains. Now, God the Father has begotten God the Son, using, not in, using it in the same Hebrew language, the same verbal stem of a woman. This is against the great Christian heretic in the early church called Arius who taught that Jesus was created, as in God the Father created him and then made him to be his son when he had the Holy Spirit take Mary's zygote and make the Savior. But this makes it clear that Jesus was begotten before all eternity. That defies human understanding. It's something we accept in faith. But it makes it very clear that Jesus is true God. In fact, our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when Jesus was born, he hid his deity. For no man can see all the glory of the Lord and live. So, Jesus' baptism. 
The Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. He's anointed. It makes it clear this one is the anointed one. This one is the Savior. And God the Father even speaks. He says, ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. When mankind fell, they were destined to hell. Jesus would be perfect for you in your place and suffer the punishment your sins deserve on the cross. So Jesus' anointing makes it clear that he's the king of all creation, true God, who became true man to save you. And that is the most important point I want you to get out of today's sermon. Now, let's start at verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people grumble in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers join together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and throw off their ropes from us. Isn't it interesting how many nations, how many governments, how many people in power will persecute the Christian church? You see, the truth of the matter is God says, I'm the God of all creation. And he tells governments and those in power, you're answerable to me. They don't like that. As we say here in America, power corrupts. And if you've been corrupted by power, the absolute last thing that you want to hear is, there's somebody with way more power than you, and they will hold you accountable. You are accountable now. And so they view God as enslaving them. How does God view their persecuting his church, coming after him? Verse 4 says, the one who is seated in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Now, normally ants don't attack humans unless a child is actually being lousy to them and, and then they'll come after him in defense. But imagine an adult looking at an ant who's decided to come after and attack them. <laughs> I'll squash you literally like a bug. That's God's reaction. You see, God knows every thought that ever could enter your head, even every thought that could potentially enter your head, and the outcome of every thought. And he knew that before he said, let there be light, and began the act of creation. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, our triune God, is all-knowing. Also, our God is powerful. He's all-powerful. He made all of this. He owns creation. He laughs at governments that would try to persecute him by persecuting his church and says, I own you. Also, he's present everywhere. God would not need to call on angels or other things to do his fighting because he's present everywhere. He could immediately stop it. And so governments trying to do away with God, those in power, those in positions of authority, God laughs at them. You're like an ant coming after me. In fact, you're less than an ant coming after me. But we're also warned in verse 5, then he speaks to them in his anger, and in his wrath, he terrifies them. A perfect example of this is Egypt. Egypt was persecuting his people. God said, enough. Through the plagues that he sent, he was trying to convert the Egyptian people into his grace. But every plague attacked at least one, if not more, than one of the Egyptian gods and made it very clear, God was saying, I am the true God. I've had enough. 
Let's fast forward ahead a few thousand years. A Pharisee named Saul is persecuting God's church. He is heading up to Damascus to arrest more Christians. He will bring them back to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin will put them to death. God says, enough. He steps in the road. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now in this case, God takes a great enemy and gives him faith. Makes him the apostle to the Gentiles. Why was Jesus anointed? We've already seen it is to make known that he is the savior, the king of all creation. But another thing is to make known to his enemies, the one they're going after. And he destroys them one way or the other. I dare you to name one persecutor of the Christian church that has outlasted the Christian church. The Roman Empire, by the time it learned its lesson, it was gone. Oh, and what about the Antichrist? Because scripture says that he will exist right up until Christ returns. But the Christian church is older than the Antichrist who really starts coming into power around 500 AD. So Jesus' anointing makes it clear to his enemies, I'm the one who's here to destroy you. In fact, verses 8 and 9 says, Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will smash them with an iron rod. You will break them to pieces like pottery. I've mentioned ways he does that in history, dethroning kings and stuff like that. But on the last day when Christ returns, they will ultimately be smashed like pottery and destroyed. So why was Jesus baptized? To let his enemies know who they're attacking against and to let them know I'm the one who's going to destroy you. But let's get back to you and I. Looking at verse 3, those words, let us tear off their chains and throw off their ropes from us. You and I have a sinful nature. And in our natural condition, we view loving God and serving the Lord as slavery. Ask an unbeliever, and what's their impression of the Christian church? If I'm going to follow your God, there's those ten written in stone, do not. And we're told even our thoughts violating those are wrong. Your God is enslaving. But see, that's the devil's lie. Scripture makes it clear that in our natural condition, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, we are slaves to the devil. And the chains that hold us is that sinful nature. And we're also slaves to death. Yes, even believers may die unless they're the last generation when Christ returns. But death is different for them because they are going to be with the Father. They wouldn't change things when they're in paradise in heaven before the throne of God. Mankind likes to believe the uh, lie, and it's called free will. We like to think that we can pick and choose between God or the devil, and we like to think that we can pick a middle ground. We like to think that we can make a decision. But when it comes to spiritual issues, we have no free will. You are either a slave to the devil, and like I said, your sinful nature, that's the chains that enslave you. Or Christ has set you free, by doing, as I mentioned at the beginning, the baptism of a child, by giving you the Holy Spirit through the word that tells you that Jesus is the one anointed. He's your savior. He's the king of all creation. In which case then he gives birth, the Holy Spirit gives birth to the new man in you, a new person. You are now free. In your natural sinful condition, you were not free to serve God. You were free to pick which sin you were going to do, but you were not free not to sin. You were not free to struggle against sin. 
Jesus took on human flesh to break the chains of your slavery and make you his child. And shame on us Christians when, and there's one in every congregation, if not many, who get mistaken and they start teaching, yes, you're a Christian, Christ has saved you, you're free. But now here's this list of 10 things you have to do. Our new man naturally does that. It's built in us. Christianity is not slavery. Faith in Christ is actual freedom. And so verse 6 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And it continues, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Zion was the mountain where the Savior, what, sorry. Zion was the mountain where the temple was built. And the temple pointed to the Savior. All those sacrifices showed the wages of sin is death. But all the forgiveness that followed pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the temple was modeled after the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had the holiest of holies where the Ten Commandments were kept. The Ark of the Covenant was what kept them. And the top of that ark was called the mercy seat. And there God had promised to dwell. There the blood of sacrifices was poured over over the law that we transgress. So all the temple built on Zion was meant to represent and be a foreshadow of the coming Christ. There was where God had promised to dwell. What about the New Testament era? The temple's been destroyed and it doesn't matter because the temple pointed to the coming Christ. See, the true temple of God is pointed out the clearest by the apostle Peter in his first epistle. Jesus is the foundation stone, but you are one of the bricks, and I am one of the bricks that are built upon Christ. We are placed upon that foundation stone when the Holy Spirit brings us to faith. So you make the temple of the Lord. Christ is ruling on his throne for his church, the invisible church, which is his temple. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians refers to that as the bride of Christ, and the Apostle Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians as the body of Christ in which you and I make up the individual parts. The point here is, Christ is in the midst of his temple, which is you and I, his church, and he's ruling for us. He's been installed to rule over all time and creation for the benefit of his bride, the church. And since you are a body part, since you are a brick, you can safely assume that when things happen in your life, good or bad, Christ is using them for your benefit because you are a member of his body, his temple, the church. Why was Jesus baptized? Again, We've already talked about in verse 7, he's the savior, he's the king of all creation. But here, his baptism tells you that he is ruling over all creation for you. Everything's going to be okay. He's ruling for you. Now, let's get back to those who persecute the church. Starting at verse 10, we're told, So now you kings do what is wise. Accept discipline, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry with you and you will be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. We've covered that God has tremendous grace and patience. But he does have that point like with governments, those who would persecute him where he says, Enough. To kiss somebody in the time that Christ walked the earth was to show that you love them dearly. 
It was very intimate. In America today, we kiss our children and we kiss our spouses, but the kiss meant also like a sign of submission and deep love and respect. That's why it was so abhorrent when Judas betrayed Jesus with the kiss. God is telling those who are in authority, those who have power here, you really should have a love, not just a I'm afraid of you and so I respect you, but I see you as the wonderful king of all creation. See, we get confused as to what the role of government is and why God puts people in positions of authority. The reason why God created government was to protect your life. Now, your life, in order to be sustained, needs clothes. It needs shelter. It needs food. So the government protects your property in order to protect your life. What God is saying to those who are in positions of power and authority is, you're my representative. Act like it. Sometimes people don't. Remember, because the purpose of government is to protect your life, your temporal life, and your temporal possessions, really it's protecting God's church. Now, we don't want to confuse the two. God has given the forgiveness of sins to the Christian church. He's given the government the ability to punish and discipline and ultimately even take life as a, as a temporal discipline in order to protect your life and property. But another reason why Jesus was anointed, he's telling governments, this is the one whom you serve. Let's wrap this sermon up by focusing once again on you at the very end of verse 12 where it says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the time that Psalm 2 was written, if you were, for example, a shepherd or you were a farmer working outside of the city where your crops would be, if an invader came in to take over your city, you ran into those city gates and they were closed and the king then used his army to protect you and he would be responsible for feeding you and making sure you had the things you needed during that time of siege. How wonderful it is to run to Jesus for refuge because the devil does not like the fact that you're no longer a slave to him. He has one plan for you and just one. You are God's creation so he hates your new man and he wants to see that new man or woman in you destroyed. He wants you to burn in hell eternally with him. So he attacks you and your sinful nature is his puppet again. And it constantly gets us to sin. There are times our new man loses the battle with our sinful nature. So we run to refuge in Christ. And there's a difference between embracing a sin and the sinful nature winning a battle uh, temporarily. We run to Christ. And how do we do that? We run to his word where we are told your sins are forgiven. Christ has covered them. And this is why we come together to worship, especially uh, in America, formally as a congregation, we come together to worship so that we can hear the word of God, which nourishes and sustains our faith. We run to Christ for refuge. If you're being persecuted for your faith, you turn to Christ. His refuge may be to give you heaven. His refuge may be to destroy those who are persecuting you. It may be to convert them like he did the Apostle Paul. Either way, we gather around his word and his sacraments where he nourishes our faith and keeps that new person in us strong. Why was Jesus baptized? To tell you who to run to for refuge. So let's wrap all that up. 
by today's text, things, reasons we see why Jesus was baptized. The anointed one in Hebrew is transliterated through the Greek language into English as Messiah. The Greek word for that was Christos, which means anointed. So Jesus' baptism is where he is anointed to make it abundantly clear to us that he's the king of all creation and our savior. Look nowhere else to know the king of creation and your salvation. But he was anointed to let his enemies know, I'm the one you're warring against and I'm the one who will destroy you. He was anointed to let us know, this is the one who rules over all creation for us. He was anointed to tell governments, this is the one whom you serve and represent. And again, because he was anointed to let you and I know that he rules for us, he was anointed so you and I would know who to turn to for refuge. And in his word, he builds us up and encourages us and keeps us in his kingdom. Amen. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.